Well, good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Kids, so good to see you. Can I get a nice, hearty hello from you? You can yell it. So good to see you. I'm glad that you are here, kids. I'm looking forward to you having Kids Park again soon, but I'm glad that you're in the sanctuary. And parents always know that if you need to step out with your kids, there are family rooms available, but we love having the kids here. The noise probably bothers you more than it bothers me, so hopefully that helps you to be comfortable and at ease with your children here in the sanctuary. Well, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day set aside to honor his legacy, to remember his life and the great contributions that he made during the civil rights movement of the 60s. And yet, 53 years later after his assassination, many people in our country and in our own church experience hurt and are traumatized by racism on a daily basis. And at the same time, other people deny racism even exists. Wednesday is the presidential inauguration. Many people in our country and our church are excited for a change in power and think that a change in power will lead to a better and more peaceful future. Other people in our country and our own church are afraid for a change in power. They think that a change in power is going to affect their religious liberties and the peace of their life. We may be arguing from a, from a different perspective, but we're all suffering from the same problem. James, the brother of Jesus, he identifies this problem accurately when he wrote in the first century to a church that was in danger of losing its gospel influence due to cultural conformity. James writes, James chapter 4, he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly so that you might spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know That friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or do you not suppose that it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Would you pray with me one more time? God, on behalf of Park Community Church, I confess this morning that we are a people who are caught up in the schemes of the devil and the pursuits of the world. We want and we do not have, so we quarrel and we fight. We often fail to ask you for what we need, and even when we do ask you for what we need and what we want, we often ask so that we might spend it on our own passions and our own desires and confirmation of our own perspectives, rather than asking you to do what you want for your glory. Lord, forgive us. Be gracious and merciful to us. Kill our pride. Grant us humility And shower us with your favor, with your grace. We are here this morning in submission to you, King Jesus. 
We long to draw near to you, believing that as we long to draw near to us, as we long to draw near to you, you draw near to us. So come, Holy Spirit of the living God, and inhabit this moment with your power and your presence. In the name of Jesus, I pray with boldness and confident assurance. Amen. Well, this morning we kick off a new sermon series on the book of James. And while I want to do a sermon this morning on kind of the cultural idols in our world, I mean, it's a big week. MLK Day tomorrow, presidential inauguration on Wednesday. Who knows what's going to happen? The news is going to be filled with opinions, with stories. Maybe there will be riots. Who knows what will happen this week? And, and personally, I kind of want to do a sermon on that. I want to engage the cultural idols and, and talk about that. And there's a time and a place to do that. And I think at some point in the future, I'm going to do a sermon or a video or some blogs on some of our common cultural idols here in America, but I'm a biblical exegete and commentator before I'm a cultural exegete and commentator. So this morning, I want to open up God's Word. I want to exegete the Scriptures. I want to make comments. I want to look at and take away points from God's Word, trusting that that will inform us about what's going on in our culture. All right, so I'm going to ask that you stand as I read from James chapter 1, what I read just a minute ago was from James chapter 4, but we're going to start this book in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, follow along with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. God, may this word come alive to us today. You may have a seat. Well, this morning, as we look at the first part of James here, I want to do three things. I want to consider the author of this book. I want to consider the audience of who this book is written to. And I want to consider the address, what it actually tells us in verses 1 through 11. Yes, I'm becoming an old man pastor. I had to get three A's in there, right? The author, the audience, and the address. Let's start by talking about the author. The author is James tells us that the very first word of this letter, James. Now, I want you to know that James is a bond slave brother of Jesus. James tells us as he writes this letter, he begins by telling us who he is, James. He doesn't claim relation to Jesus. I'm informing you that, uh, about that because I think it's important for you to know that this James, this author, the author of this book, is the half-brother of Jesus. They have the same mother, Mary. Of course, Jesus' father was God, right? James' father was Joseph. 
James is the brother of Jesus. But I think it's significant that James start this, starts this book by saying James, a servant. The Greek word there is doulos. It means a bond slave. Now, slavery, horrific, horrific, horrific sin that is prevalent around the world and has been prevalent in the history of our country. Now, slavery is, is, is a horrific sin that needs to be denounced and we need to continue to, to, to grow from and, and, and deal with the pains and the history of it here in America, but it's something that has existed. It existed in a biblical context. And so they were familiar with slavery and, and what the scriptures do, what Jesus does is he comes on the scene and we see the followers of Christ claiming that they are slaves or bond slaves to Jesus, their master. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, it's interesting, again, that he didn't claim. If you were writing a letter to a group of people who were claiming to follow Jesus, what would your credentials be? Mine would be lead pastor of a church. Listen, I have a title. That gives me some credibility. I'm credentialed with a denomination. People, people think that I understand the scriptures, and so therefore you ought to listen to me. If you were Jesus' brother, wouldn't you want to claim that as a pretty high credential? Listen up, church. I lived with him. We shared a room. He was always calling out all of my sin, and I was jealous of him because he never sinned. He's my brother. I watched his life up close under a microscope for 33 years. Listen up. James doesn't do that. His first identity to God and in relation to God in his mind here is one of submission, of humility. He's a bond slave. means I'm underneath his authority, underneath the authority of Yahweh, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, his son, as a slave. I will do what they tell me to do. My life is lived in submission to them, and I am expecting nothing in return. Now, I think it's interesting. In John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples, he tells his followers, no longer do you have to call me master. I no longer call you servant. I call you friend. Jesus uses the same Greek word, doulos, there. He says, no longer do I call you bond slave. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' relationship with us, it's so multifaceted. We are his slaves, yet we're also his friends. He is a master, yet he's also a friend. He, he releases us from the burden of being bond slaves, yet those who are submitted to him continue to see themselves in humble submission to him, saying, whatever you say, master, we will do because we love you, and so we're bound to you. I think it's interesting. Jesus tells his followers, you're my friends. You don't need to be seen as a bond slave, but yet here his brother, his, his follower, chooses this title. James, the servant, doulos, the bond slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We can learn a lot from even James' beginning of this book and how he sees himself in relationship to Jesus. Secondly, James had a nickname in the early church. It was James the Just. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And so what you need to know about James, the brother of Jesus, is actually he was skeptical about Jesus being the Messiah for Jesus' entire life. Because sometimes when we get near something that, that looks like godliness, we get jealous, don't we? We get bitter. We try and point out the flaws. I don't know why James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but if you live with this person and you never saw them sin, everything they did was righteousness, you would go one of two ways. You would either be convinced that they are God or you would try and distance them because they make you feel constantly bad. 
right? You know those kind of people who are just super obedient and disciplined and godly? In your right mind, you want to be near them, but in your depraved flesh, you want to distance yourself from them because you feel guilty every time you're around them. I have to think that's probably how James felt about his brother, Jesus. And what we need to know is that James was skeptical of Jesus until Jesus overcame sin and death and the grave. James, the brother of Jesus, was skeptical of Jesus until Jesus raised from the dead, until he saw the empty tomb, until he talked with Jesus' resurrected body, until he touched his resurrected body, and then James was convinced. This Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Jesus Christ means. Jesus, that's his name. Christ, the Messiah. James has this life transformation, this change upon seeing the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And so he, he then becomes this bond slave to Jesus. And again, he's a pastor in the church in Jerusalem. And he was such a guy that was, he was so transformed by the life the teaching, the ministry of Jesus, and then the resurrection of Jesus, and the subsequent Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. James was so transformed by that that he was just a man of righteousness. The nickname, James the Just, in a world that's crying out for justice right now. Right? Isn't that the cry of our day and age? Isn't that the cry of our nation? Isn't that the, the chant that's been used at, at riots and peaceful protests and not peaceful protests and whatever has happened in the last year? Justice, justice, justice. If we want to understand justice, let's look into the book of James because the author of this book had the nickname James the Just. We'll begin to understand justice as we look at this man's life and, and what he teaches us. And then lastly, James is just a man of faith and action. The book of James can be summarized as faith in action. James, over and over and over again, is going to remind us that it doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you do. You can say a lot of good things in the name of justice. You can say a lot of good things in the name of righteousness. You can claim to be pious. You can say a lot of religious jargon, but what you do matters. And so James is going to show us what it looks like to put our Christian faith into practical action day in and day out. He's a man of faith and action. In fact, he was killed. He was martyred for being a follower of Jesus. So good, so righteous, that the world killed him because of his faith. In fact, throughout this book, there's 54 appeals to obedience. 54 things that you ought to do if you want to put your faith into action. Now, sometimes people see James in the book of Romans as, as competing. Romans is all about faith without works, right? We're, we're, not, we're not earning our faith with our works. And James has this very close tie to saying, well, if you have faith, it will work its way out. You can't claim to have faith in God and, and to be a servant, a bond slave, or even a friend of Jesus if you don't do what he has asked you to do. And so James is going to show us what this looks like. And, and they're not at odds, Romans and the book of James. They're actually friends. So we're going to see that as we go throughout this book. That's a little bit about the author. Now next, the audience. The audience, he tells us right away in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, the 12 tribes, he, he's saying to the, to the Jewish believers, the 12 tribes of Israel, they had been dispersed throughout the region uh, from Jerusalem. They were all there. And then Jesus was crucified, buried. He rose again. They hung around in the city for a while. They were there for the census. And then they, they all went back home. 
and they were all scattered because they were experiencing trials and tribulation in Jerusalem. And so he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he's saying to, to, to the Jews, to the God-fearing Jews, to the Jews who have now placed their faith in Jesus Christ, to the Jews who understand that Jesus actually is your Messiah, I write to you. But he's not writing to Jews at the exclusion of the Gentiles. We'll see throughout the book that, in fact, I think what he's doing here in this language to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he's saying to God's chosen people, the Jews, those Jews who have put their faith in Jesus, but also the Gentiles who believe in Jesus, you are now grafted in. You're considered among the 12 tribes of the dispersion, the diaspora, the scattered out Jews. There is no longer Jew and Gentile. There are God's people, Jews who believe in Jesus and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, and that's who he writes to. So yes, scattered Jewish believers of who James is, but he includes Gentiles like you and I who believe in Jesus. Specifically, this audience, the people who make up this book, who it's written to, it's Christians experiencing trials. We'll see throughout the book over and over again that they're just like you and I. This book may have been written 2,000 years ago, but they're experiencing trials and tribulations and pressures just like you and I. And they're also Christians in temptation. Again, they may have lived 2,000 years ago. Their temptation may have not come by as a, as a smartphone in their pocket with all of the temptation that that brings you to read wrong news sources, to make foolish comments on social media, to look at images that should not be looked at, to engage in conversations that should not be engaged in. I mean, think of the world of sin that lives in your pocket. Be careful with that. Now, it, it can also be a tool used for good, right? So I'm not saying get rid of your phone. Just be careful with it. A thing that lives in your pocket, it can lead you to a world of sin or a world of righteousness. It holds a lot of temptation. What I want you to know, church, is that these believers 2,000 years ago, they experienced the same temptations that you and I experienced, and we're going to see that as we go throughout this book. So that's a little bit about the author and the audience. Next, I want to focus on the address, the actual teaching that James gives us here in the first part of the book. And I want to summarize it in, in three different phrases. There's three paragraphs here. I want to summarize it in three phases. These are so important for us to understand and for us to embrace this mindset, church family, if we are going to live our life in this world, in the here and now, and flourish for the glory of God, for the good of those who do life, we do life with, and the advancement of the gospel, if we're going to live and flourish, we need to understand what James is teaching here. And he tells us to rejoice in trials, to ride the waves, and to embrace mortality. Rejoice in trials, ride the waves, and embrace mortality. So that's the address, that's the content of this passage that I want to consider and look at this morning. The first part, portion, rejoice in trials, verses 2 through 4. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, and, and this is a gender-neutral term. It can be brothers and sisters. The translators over the years, they've shortened it to brothers. That's unfortunate for you sisters who are in here, and you see all this masculine language in the scriptures. You're not excluded. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, my sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's James' first teaching for us. Other than all that's implied in the greeting, right? About being a bond slave, a servant of God, about who the church is and who it's made up of. But the first concrete teaching here for us to wrap our minds around is for us to rejoice in trials. 
how counterintuitive that is to you and I. How countercultural that is here and now in our world. We, we live in a day and age where we try and get rid of trials as fast and as quickly and mo- as most efficiently as possible, right? Amen? I mean, almost all of our pursuits in life are to minimize trials, to get rid of an annoyance, to speed things up, to expedite the process. Who wants to sit in a trial? Who wants to stay home in quarantine? Who wants to deal with the things of life and what keeps being thrown at us? We want to solve the the issue. We want to figure out the problem. We want to diagnose it and we want to remove the trial. This is deeply embedded in our hearts. To move on, to get over it, find a solution, turn the page. It's 2021. Oh, 2021 is going to be such a better year than 2020, right? 2020 was full of trials. And then what happened on January 6th? We see a blatant, obvious example of just another trial. 2021 is not going to be different than 2020. 2021 is going to be filled with trials and tribulations. And what is James telling us? He's instructing the Christians not to run from trials, not to bury your head in the sand and hide from trials, not to try and figure out how to, how to, how to answer all the questions and solve all the situations and, and move on and fix it. He's saying rejoice in your trials. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Are you kidding me? You're not going to hear this in the world. You're not going to hear this on the news. You're not going to hear this on social media unless you follow good Christian friends who post this verse. But mostly they're probably posting it to remind themselves because they're not actually doing it because they're swept in a culture that doesn't teach this. This is the countercultural message of Scripture, of addressed to God's people. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Not the quick solving, moving it along, efficiency. That doesn't produce steadfastness. That doesn't produce Christ-likeness. That produces worldliness. When we can think that we have the systemic issues of sin in the world figured out, sweep it under the rug, or just solve it and move on, no. Count it all joy when you meet trials. And I love that he includes of various kinds. Trials are all over the map. There's a multitude of trials that you're going to face today, tomorrow, this week, this year. He says, count it all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, here's the gospel truth. If you are in Jesus, you are perfected. You are complete. You are lacking nothing. God looks at you through Jesus Christ, and he says, you are righteous, you are pure, you are spotless. And so now, knowing that status, knowing that position, you grow into that. You become who you are as you persevere through trials, as you rejoice in your trials. Oh, church family, we have so much to learn about what it means to actually rejoice in trial and not, not, not begrudge the trial or bemoan the trial, or try and solve the trial and move on. We can learn so much from global Christians. There's Christians around the world who are being persecuted in a real way. A real way. Listen to me, church family. Christians in America are not being persecuted right now. 
I, I saw someone from our church posted this this week. They said, Christians in America aren't being persecuted. They're being held accountable to act like Jesus. I like that. I think that's good. Some of our hypocrisy is being exposed, and we think it's persecution. It's not so much persecution. There may come a day and a time when we're persecuted here. It doesn't matter. Embrace it for the glory of God. Because often when the Christians are persecuted, the church grows more rapidly. And so, church family, American Christians, I don't even want to say American Christians, Christians who happen to be living in America, we have so much to learn about rejoicing in trials. We can learn this from the global church, from the persecuted church who continue to rejoice and rejoice and rejoice in Jesus even though they don't have the social freedoms that we so love. We can learn this from the African-American church. If, if you want to understand what it looks like to rejoice in trial, do a little study on the history of the black church in America. A people who have been in slavery, a people who have been persecuted, a people who have been lynched and mobbed. Some of the, the African-American spirituals that they sang as they, as they were being persecuted, as they were being executed by white Christians in the name of God. And this, this, this black church, these people who, who just clung to God. I love some of their, their songs. All God's chillin' got wings. Here's how it goes. This is, and this is what they would sing as they're persecuted. I got shoes, you got shoes. They had to say that because oftentimes they didn't have shoes. It was a luxury for these former slaves to get shoes. I got shoes, you got shoes. All God's children got shoes. I got a robe, you got a robe. All God's children got a robe. I got a harp, you got a harp. All God's children got a harp. I got wings, you got wings. All God's children got a wings. They would sing these as they're being mobbed and lynched by people in the name of Jesus. Rejoice in trials? It's time for us to learn. Another song, African-American spiritual. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, the trouble I've seen, the trouble I've seen. Glory, hallelujah, nobody knows the trouble I've seen except for Jesus. So what it means to rejoice in trial. You cling to Jesus in the midst of what you're going through. Or the song, Free at Last, quoted by MLK in his speech, I Have a Dream this African-American spiritual, he says, Martin Luther King in his speech, I have a dream, he says, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. See, church, this is what it means when James writes, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. He's not saying complain about it, begrudge it, complain about your leaders, complain about your politicians, voice your opinion over and over again. He's saying, no, find a way to rejoice in this trial because God is producing in you something that you could not produce on your own. 
And so, church family, let's learn to rejoice in our trials. This upcoming year is going to be filled with trials. How can you live through it? By learning to rejoice. Rejoice in your trials. Rejoice in your trials. Now, next one is ride the waves. Verses 5 through 8. James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, any of you guilty of this? How about right now? More so than ever. I don't know what to believe. I don't know who to listen to. I don't understand all the things at play. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, writing to a people who, knew, who he knew that they, they, they lacked wisdom and they were confused about conflicting reports and what Jesus wanted from his followers, what the Jewish leaders expected from Jews and what Gentiles were allowed to do. They were mixed up in this convergence of religious tradition from the Jews and now this, this new life of faith in Jesus Christ where there's freedom, where they're called friends rather than slaves, yet they also want to submit their lives to King Jesus and follow him and call him master and Lord, yet he called me a friend. How, do, what, what do I do? Who do I listen to? James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. See, James here is, is letting us know, he's using this imagery say ride the waves because you can either ride the wave or the, ra- the wave can ride you. I know this from two diff- probably a lot of different occasions, but two specific come to mind. When I was a youth pastor, I took a group of students to the Boundary Waters a couple of years in a row. And one year we had an eighth grader, Paul Swanson. Are you here? He's probably not here this morning. He might be live streaming it. Paul Swanson, who's a part of our church, he was an eighth grader going in to be a ninth grader. And we only took senior hires on this trip, and so we actually weren't going to bring Paul, but his mom met with me, and she was like, could you please bring Paul? I think it would be so good for him. And I was like, all right, fine, I'll take him, even though I think he's on the younger end of the maturity level that we're looking for for a trip to the Boundary Waters. But we took Paul with, and um, me and the other youth leader, we were like young 20s ourselves, so we weren't the most responsible youth leaders. Like the two of us were always in a canoe together, and we put all the students in their own canoe. We got out to our lake this one night. We had, a, we had our car broke down on the way to the Boundary Waters. We didn't get in until late. We had, I shouldn't tell you this. Um, I'll keep some of my stories to myself. We got into our lake late, and it was windy. There were white caps, waves, and we had all of our canoes filled with all of our camping supplies. And me and the other youth leader got in our canoe, me and the other adult, two adults, nine uh, nine people total, two adults, seven teenagers. One of them, Paul, an eighth grader, and then Noah, a friend who was one year older than him. The two of them got in a canoe with all their stuff, and we're going to paddle across this lake with white caps in canoes, all of our stuff. You tip, waves crash over, everything's wet, it's going to be an awful trip. Terrifying trip. I was too young and immature to, to really think about that, so me and my friend hopped in our canoe and we went to our campsite. Thankfully, in God's grace, the next canoe got there, the next canoe got there, and then we were like, where are Paul and Noah? How come they're not here? Because Paul's like 20 pounds, so the canoe goes everywhere with the wave. The wave pushes him around. We, lo- we learned later they also lost a paddle. 
So they're, they're getting pushed around by the waves. They have one paddle. They got pushed to the clear other end of the lake. We had to go and rescue them. See, waves can push you around. If you're ever going to the boundary waters, the best way to, to conquer waves is to have two capable people, two like fully grown people in a canoe and two paddles. You don't want to be pushed around by the waves, but if you have the right tools, if you have two paddles, if you, if you have your weight balanced right in the canoe, you can ride the wave. I also, as a, as a young kid growing up in Grand Marais, we used to do this thing. I can't tell you the name of it. I was a teenager. My dad was a pastor, so I was trying to rebel, so the name of this game that we played had a swear word in it. Um, that was my rebel years, putting a swear word into the name of a game that we played with Lake Superior. But me and my friends, we, we learned how to ride the waves of Lake Superior. And so we would go, and we would go down, and we would tuck underneath the wave, and the wave would roll us over a certain way, and then we would pop up. But if you didn't hit the wave right, it would roll you around and toss you around, and you had no control over the wave. There's a certain, surfers know this too, you can ride the wave, or the wave can ride you. You don't want the wave to ride you, you want to ride the wave. And so here's what James is telling us, that, that life is full of storms. Life has waves. They're trials, they're tribulations, they're unavoidable. He's saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James is informing us, he's telling us, you can actually ride the wave. You can get on top of the wave. You can control yourself in the wave. The wave doesn't have to crush you. The wave doesn't have to own you. The wave doesn't have to push you to the other side of the lake. If you have the right tools, prayer, and faith, you can ride the wave. The waves of life, the storms of life, ought not to push the believer of Christ around, leaving them helpless and off course, missing their destination. Prayer and faith is like a well-balanced canoe with two paddles, able to ride the wave and able to arrive at the destination. James is saying, ask, pray. If you lack wisdom, if you feel like you're being blown around like, like a wave of the sea or a, or a rudderless canoe, if you feel like you don't know what to believe or who to believe or what to listen to or when to listen to it or, or what to think or what to do, pray. Ask God for wisdom, believing that he will give you wisdom and he will grant it to you. And you no longer need to be consumed or controlled by the wave, but you can actually be controlled in the midst of the storm. And then lastly, James tells us to embrace mortality. I love this. Embrace mortality. Church family, if you get to the point where you can just embrace your mortality, life will go so much better for you. If you, can, if you can let go of kind of that, that need to feel like you have to control life and hold on to life and extend life and maximize life and simply embrace your mortality. James writes, verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Seems counterintuitive, right? The lowly brother boasts in his exaltation? Yeah, that's exactly what he said. Let the lowly brother, the one who in the world's eyes has no status, has no privilege. Let that person boast in his exaltation. Why? Because scriptures over and over again tell us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. 
Think about Matthew chapter 5, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the gentle, the quiet, the lowly. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. If you feel like you're just constantly behind in life, like you can't get ahead, like you have no status, privilege, or prestige, take heart because you're actually closer to the heart of God. Historically speaking, followers of Christ would be more likely to be slaves than to be slave owners would be more likely to be poor than to be rich, are more likely to have little than to have much. And James is warning us to embrace our mortality. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So if you're rich, if you have a lot of money, if you have a lot of status, if you have a lot of privilege, if you have a lot of prestige, don't find your boasting in what you have. Boast in your humiliation. That though God has given me a lot, that God has blessed me with a lot of material good, I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ and being in, in, in submission to him, being his friend and also his bondservant. He says, the rich in his humiliation. Why? Well, he tells us very clearly, because we're mortal. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. It doesn't matter how much money, privilege, prestige you will have, you will pass away. Your life has a number to it. Your days are numbered. I drove through the, the, uh, the cemetery this week because it's a good practice. Seriously, I mean it. You should drive through a cemetery a couple times a year. I drove through the, the Lakeview Cemetery on the south side of Lake Calhoun, a beautiful cemetery. There's some mausoleums, some amazing, amazing, amazing tombstones. And there's other ones all covered by snow. You know what? I didn't know any of the names that I drove by. And some of those mausoleums, those huge, huge tombstones, look like they're hardly ever visited. I wonder how, as I drove by and saw all these names, how many people remember these people? Clearly, there was some money here. I can tell by the amount of money that was spent on their tombstone, but, but as I was driving through there and thinking about preaching this week, it was such a reminder to me that we are all, as verse 10 says, like a flower of grass, we pass away. Look at, look at to how futile our life is, as James tells us and reminds us lovingly. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass. And remember, he's comparing your life to that grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Things may be going just splendid for you. And you might not make it home after this church service. And you know what will make that a lot easier? When you lose someone too early in your life, to cancer, or to a car accident. When somebody that you love passes away, it hurts, it's painful. We, we, God gives us these relationships for our good, and so it hurts, and we mourn, and we lament the loss, but you know what makes it easier? Being reminded that life, this life as we know it, is mortal. All of us, our days are numbered, 
And no matter how great your life may be, worldly speaking, don't find your boast in that. Be reminded that you are like grass of the field, a flower, that your beauty comes and it goes. And so find your hope in God as you embrace your mortality, church family. This morning, as we close, I want you to just spend some time in silence. For those of you with kids, I'm sorry, I know it's going to be harder for you to spend some time in silence. You'll just spend the next few minutes in distraction. Hopefully you can find silence sometime this week. I want to invite us to spend a few moments just in silence. If you've given your life to Jesus, there's communion elements in the pew in front of you. Take that, and when you feel led and ready, take communion. Remember who Jesus is, that, that he lived 33 years, gave his life for you. He embraced the mortality of the flesh, but then he was raised again and lived forever and gives us new life. He gives us immortality as we embrace our flesh mortality, but embrace our spiritual immortality. And so spend some time in silence where you're at, repenting of whatever the Spirit reveals to you, or reflecting on whatever God is speaking to you, or rejoicing in whatever gospel truths he's renewing to you. Spend some quiet time where you're at as the band plays. Take communion when you're ready as a reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done, and then stand and sing with us as we close out this morning. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for transforming your brother James, for making him a believer, for calling him friend, and yet, yet he wanted to see himself in a, in a humble, submissive relationship to you, so he calls himself a bond slave, a servant. Lord, thank you for transforming his life in such a way that we have this letter to study and learn from. Lord, I pray that as we look at it over the coming months, that you would consistently meet us and transform us. Lord, I pray this day that we would walk out of here as people who are more readily, more willing, more able, at least intellectually, and I pray that you would change us and transform us so that we can actually practically do this. I pray that we would be people who rejoice in our trials, who ride the waves, and who embrace our mortality for your glory, for our own good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. Amen.